and welcome to the fourth episode of Podcastles. I'm Nikita and I'm here with my sister Georgia. Hello. And this week we're wrapping up Warwickshire. So this week we've got a theme episode, haven't we, Georgia? It's our first ever theme episode and how these work is that basically at the end of a county, we're going to take a topic that was really prevalent in those weeks. We're then going to look at that topic in the context of the whole country. So it's not just focused on Warwickshire, but um, definitely something that's come out in the Warwickshire castles. Yeah, and so this week we thought we would look at castles and kingmaking, the power of the nobility. So, fourth episode. Four, four episodes in. How are you doing, Georgia? How are you finding it? I'm good, thank you. I'm so excited to see how this episode is going to work. Yeah. We'll see. Okay, full disclosure, we have no idea how this episode is supposed to be structured. So it, it's a bit of a trial and error. So if you don't like it, or if you do, if you let do, us know. Give, yeah, us, let us know. give us improvements. Let us know if you There's, would like to hear something that we're not giving we're you. We're always looking at ways to improve. Absolutely. I'm particularly excited to talk about the Tudors in this. I'm so Tudors ready. I pulled out all my notes from A-levels because I studied a lot of what we're going to look at today, the nobility and the power of nobility in the Tudors. Looked at that a lot in my A-levels. So I went upstairs, dug it all out of the loft. It was very difficult. I have many a bruise and scratch now. And I came into the room with like four folders and all this paper and I've kept all my like note cards and all my posters and Nick just looked at me like, oh gosh, this is going to be the longest episode we've ever done. And then she dropped them. I dropped them all. <laughs> so we had to organise them. <laughs> but it was looking going to be good. So I've, I've kind of tried to work out a structure for this there are two ways i think to look at this topic and they kind of intertwine so you first you've got the idea of king making in terms of rebellions and uprisings and the nobility wielding their power as a way to sort of move against what the current king is doing or their advisors or potentially you can see it as like a sort of a counterbalance to the the power that the ruler has yeah so it keeps the it kind of keeps the king in check i think you could yeah. Say quite safely. And so these are fights against evil counsellors. And then later on, mm. I think we'll get on to sort of the other thing, which is the power that nobility have in literally king making and what to it replace to the replace king. the king yeah. and what it takes to replace a king and the sway that the nobility have in allowing that to happen and of course there's always nobility on both sides when there's a rebellion mm. there are of course nobles leading that often rebelling against yeah. the advisors but then there's also often nobles on the side of the king yeah, exactly supporting him so we're going to mm -hmm. look at sort of both angles you mentioned a very interesting thing there about going against the evil counselors i think we should talk about that straight away this is something that pops up all the time when they're not happy with the king they often say they all almost always say yeah we're not rebelling against you we're not rebelling against you we're rebelling against your evil counselors you're getting bad advice and that is their way of claiming they're not committing treason and going against mm. the king because they're going against the advisors the problem there for them is also that if someone is too close to the king if one person has that much power or a couple of people have that much power, that's going to negatively affect the other nobility because you have to continuously sort of politically fight in not necessarily it's patronage. It's patronage. You it's need, a world of patronage, mm, yeah. You need you need the influence to have the power that you have and you don't want to lose that and the people who are close to the king are able to influence it and they mm. have different ideas. I mean, we could do a whole episode on patronage at some point. That would be really interesting. That would be interesting. I found loads of stuff and I kept forgetting being like that's not exactly what we're looking at today. No. I think that was our problem in general with this. Oh, episode. I just kept getting distracted. Everything is so interconnected. It's so hard to stay on topic. So, I'm going to start in the middle. Sounds good. As as you always do. Let's start at the very middle. 
Yes, it's a very good place to start. <laughs> so uh, we're going to talk about the English Civil War. Okay. So this is Charles I, mm-hmm. and it's the Royalists versus the Parliamentarians. Yes. Now, I know what you're thinking. How is that nobility? Anything to do with nobility. Well, I'm glad you asked. So obviously, the way the English Parliament is structured mm-hmm. at this time, or I suppose it's not just the English Parliament, it's... Britain's Great Britain's Parliament. We're now talking about Scotland as well because it becomes Great Britain. Yeah, but fair. I'm going to be talking about it in the context like our pal- our Parliament has a House of Lords as well as a House of Commons, and at the time there, you know, there's debate about how much they interacted. But the papers that I've been reading have said that obviously there's quite a lot of interaction between the two in terms of coming up with things to present to the King, and this in particular, the 19 Propositions, which was the I think possibly you could argue the immediate catalyst for the war. There were okay. there were so many catalysts. Charles sure. was rubbish. We can't talk about there are so many things. But the nineteen propositions were put towards Charles by the House of Lords and the Commons. So there's there's a number of different things in this and I'm it's gonna be very overviewy because it's just, it's just such a big topic. So keeping it on task with the nobility and the power. One of the things I think we should talk about first is the idea of a bad advisor and bad counsel because Mm -hmm. a lot of the time when people talk about rebellions against the king they they phrase it in terms of we're we're, we are rebelling against the bad counsel of the king and not the king yeah it's not treason and this is this is one of the things they brought up when so as the earl of essex was saying that we are against the bad counsel of the king. you've got george villiers i'm going to just go in there george villiers duke of buckingham useless and incompetent anyway he actually gets assassinated he's really unpopular and he's a bad advisor to the king he's particularly disliked and that pushes a lot of the other nobility away from from that there's you know a bit of a faction particularly the earl of essex you shouldn't push away powerful nobility because it really annoys them (laughs) it doesn't they don't like it so it's yeah so the earl of essex in particular is for for the background that we won't go into here, very anti Buckingham. And when the fight begins, the parliamentarian side, the figurehead being Essex at this point, they are talking about the evil council that Charles has. But Charles comes back and he's saying that he's fighting against Essex's rebellion. So it's much more couched in the terminology that you would have in medieval times or like earlier times when you have mm. a literal aristocratic uprising. And so I think that's quite interesting in terms of the power that the nobility have and the importance of the way fights were structured. So some of the papers that I've been reading have been by Adamson, who, if you don't know who Adamson is, he's a really interesting historian and he does a lot of Civil War stuff. It's a really good line that he has, so I'll quote it, but the idea being that Essex was kind of given the powers that a high constable would have had during the medieval time. Okay. The 19 propositions that the House of Lords and Commons put to Charles that Charles decided he hated and didn't bother with. Two of those, one of those was about reinstating the High Constable position and the Lord Steward, Steward of England. Lord Steward of England having been previously, by the way, shout out to Lord Dudley. Mm-hmm. He was high, he was the Lord Steward. 
And he's actually the step-grandfather of Essex. So he would gain a lot from... So it's a, so Essex is one of the people who looks to benefit from these kind of positions coming back. And it's kind of a, a return to... It wouldn't be like a ceremonial position. They're asking for these to come back with the full powers that they had. And those powers... So they're wanting more nobility powers. Yeah, they they wanted, they're wanting to wanting to check the king more. And I, there's a lot to do with Charles's incompetence and divine right of kings comes into this and the whole idea that there's absolute monarchy this is a counter to that it doesn't go for it but Essex is kind of given the powers of high constable anyway Adamson is saying that from like a parliamentarian standpoint Essex kind of operates within the idea that he's got this anyway and to quote says the war of 1642 seemed to sum at Westminster disconcertingly like a baron's war and we'll put all of this in the show notes. Interesting. Yeah, and so I thought that was interesting because that's a return to the medieval times as mm. as kind of bringing in kind of political ideas there and how that influenced the war and the way the war was kind of set up. Obviously, we've talked about the Barons Wars before, so that's really interesting. Uh, we talked about it a little bit under John and also under Simon de Montfort rebelling against Henry III. Henry III, yep. Talking about the importance of Kenilworth during that battle and obviously when yeah. they also lost Kenilworth. Also, that one particularly fighting against Henry III under the idea of trying to rid the king of bad advisers. Yes, again, this comes up all the time. They're not trying to get rid of the king. We're going to talk about that in the second half yeah. of the episode. But it's talking about rebelling against the king's bad advisers. Another thing that Adamson raises is that when the war starts, obviously there's an ability on both sides and it becomes a little bit aristocracy battling for different land. Mm. Um, so it's... That there is an element of what he calls localized aristocratic struggles, so different different people trying to fight for control of different important military locations, which, to my mind, obviously is castles as well. So you know that's pretty important. I think something else worth worth noting is this whole thing feeds into a return to medieval time uh, power structures because it's trying to check the rules of the king, and so actually the people who stand to gain a lot from this are people like the Earl of Essex but also Warwick and then a couple of other Say and Pembroke. It suggests that they've not got the same power as they used to which is I guess true because the House of Commons isn't noble in the same level as the House of Lords obviously is but it's they have so much sway and then obviously at the end of the English Civil War it culminates with the execution of Charles. No. <laughs> yeah. Spoiler! Spoiler that. And, and obviously... Oliver Cromwell comes Who's in. He's not a noble, let alone Well, I king. don't know how much they still have power. The House of Lords is still important, but the interregnum is there is no king. So they've not got the heyday of power that they had in maybe the Tudor times or perhaps even the Wars of the Roses, which is mm. my very smooth segue. Yes, this is a period when the nobility aren't being controlled anywhere near as much as later on. And, I mean, the Wars of the Roses really shows a culmination of two different groups of nobility, each having someone in their midst that has royal blood and they claim is the rightful heir, and using that person to get on top. Like, for example, we've talked about this before, so we won't go into massive details about the rise of the Wars of the Roses and the the prehistory to that and stuff but Warwick is never going to be on the throne he doesn't have a royal claim but he backs various different Warwick the kingmaker Warwick the kingmaker sorry yeah he backs various nobles that he thinks should be on the throne or could be on the throne depending well. on yeah. who 
is going to give him the most prominence yeah. in the kingdom. And this is a real snowball effect of some of the nobility just get so powerful. The Duke of York is strong enough to be the protector when Henry VI first becomes incapacitated and then feels, well, actually, I have a right to the throne as well. And I think my claim is stronger. And then it wraps up into this massive battle of these nobility fighting over who should be on the throne for once it's not about oh i don't like your advisor i mean it may start like that but it becomes no i should be on the throne no i should be on the throne (laughs) and we see these key moments where certain nobility can have such a massive effect on the outcome of one of these battles the stanleys with henry the seventh which arguably is still part of the wars of the roses different historians say different things that is the stanleys played a big part in the battle of bosworth henry tudor who becomes henry the seventh and richard the third and the stanleys could have been on either side well, the and they held themselves away from battle the stanleys often do this thing yeah, where there's really two funny. brothers and they will often pitch themselves on each side because then whoever wins can petition the king for their brother to not be executed so they're kind of all the lands they never lose all their lands they never lose all their lands but it's just such a massive thing the wars of the roses shows you how powerful the nobles are whether just petitioning the king against bad advisors or whether replacing kings i mean richard the third he has he's royal so blood. Powerful. He has royal blood because he's the brother of the king. Edward the Fourth. Yes. But when his brother dies, he is the protector of Edward the Fourth's sons. But they end up in the tower mm. and they end up Dead. disappearing. And yeah. he ends up claiming the throne because he claims illegitimacy, which is a very interesting thing when you're making kings and changing kings. Mm to just claim that the previous king was illegitimate. It's done with Edward IV. I think he tries to do that first. His thing is that he claims originally that Edward IV was illegitimate because basically when Edward IV was born, if you track backwards, his dad was somewhere else. But then he changes that. They do it at multiple points in the rebellion, actually. I think the Earl of Warwick and Henry VI, well... His wife, Margaret Monjou, who's really in control of his yeah. side of the battle, claim that Edward's illegitimate at one point. There's a lot of that thrown around when you have a changing king because you have to get rid of the concept of the old king yeah. completely. And so they changed tack. And because, as we've discussed previously, Edward the Fourth was supposed to be engaged to another woman who was... I think, a foreign princess. And that was something that Warwick the Kingmaker had arranged. And then he goes off and marries Elizabeth, uh, Elizabeth Woodville instead they then claim that those princes shouldn't be heirs they're, they're illegitimate because he mm. was pro- pre-contracted to someone else that marriage was null and void yeah that's how they do it they don't claim that he wasn't the dad they claim they're not part of a real yeah. marriage yeah so richard can get to that position because he has very cleverly throughout edward's reign collected different lands so he's actually traded off his he really, is york isn't he but he's, he's also he's Glo- duke of york. gloucester he's, yeah he's duke of gloucester he's all of these different things he actually trades off his land in the southwest where there's really fertile land for like farming and he trades that off for larger portions in the north there's a really interesting book that i read a few years ago about richard the third and the way he became such a the huge magnate, magnate in the in the north so he had all this power which means that He's got a much stronger position to come in Mm. and take control because he's got popular support. 
Yes. Now, this is the interesting thing because there are some historians that talk about like the snowballing effect of nobility and they call them super nobles of just these ridiculous levels of power that we see throughout the medieval period. It really culminates in the Wars of the Roses. You can see just how much the nobles can have a say in what's happening. I also think we could maybe jump off and talk about how clearly there's the act of the, the act of trying to find a successor and the role that nobility in England play in trying to do that because obviously they're planning the succession of James I or the different contenders to succeed Elizabeth semi behind her back because she won't absolutely ha- behind ab- her back. yeah she won't hear anything of it once she's older um, but we could also in that in a slightly different way, but still covert, talk about the Glorious Revolution. Mm. So the Glorious Revolution of 1688, which is James II, who is the son of Charles I, and he's Catholic king, and he's very unpopular. This kind of doesn't start with the nobility, but so William of Orange decides that he'd quite like to invade... Yeah, and he asks I know nicely. nothing about the Glorious Revolution. He asks quite nicely, actually. It's very little bloodshed. But he is married to James II's daughter, Mary, who is Protestant. And at this point, there's this whole thing where James II has a has a son and obviously going to be, looks like there's going to be like a Catholic line of succession. So William of Orange put some feelers out. A bit like a, a speculative job application. Mm-hmm. Goes, is anybody any takers for me as king? <laughs> and so there's this group called the Immortal Seven, which is actually six lords and a bishop. Oh, sounds like a movie. Sounds like I was about to say. Sounds, sounds like, like four, a movie. four weddings and a funeral. Six lords and a bishop. I would watch that one. I'm not sure I would. But anyway, so it's it's James's daughter Mary and William come over and co-rule. Mm-hmm. And there's it, it's a whole ordeal getting like popular support, but these seven assure them that they're going to have the support and the backing of the nobility, and they manage to long story short overthrow James with relatively little bloodshed. Mm-hmm. Although I think it takes a while for the regime to really do, it, it, there's there's some teething problems to put it slightly lightly, and James is out. So that's again the nobility pretty instrumental in king making because they see fit to have a different kind of ruler. So, to jump backwards again now, sorry, this episode is all over the place, really, but it's necessary. Trust us. Stay with us. At the end of the Wars of the Roses, we were talking about Henry VII coming to the throne. Now, because of everything that happened, understandably, this leads to Henry VII being rather insecure. I mean, I think that also comes from the fact that he doesn't really have a right to be on the throne because his claim is through an illegitimate line. So there's literally there's so many reasons why he would be insecure. It's an illegitimate line and and the fact that I think his grandmother was married to the king. Yeah, he she married his grandfather after the king died or something yeah. was how it worked. But yeah, so very, very sketchy rights to the throne anyway. On top of that, he's just witnessed the Wars of the Roses. He has had to be... He's in France. He's had to be time. in France his whole life because 
of all these wars going on. He's very aware of what the nobles can do. So he imposes a lot of things to secure his throne. Some of them about the fact that like he claims he was king from like three days before the Battle of Bosworth. So anyone that fought for Richard was a traitor. He marries the York heir because he seems the Lancastrian heir. Yeah, he marries heir. Elizabeth of York. Yeah. So he does all these things. But one of the things he does throughout his reign that a lot of historians have argued over whether it was a good idea or not is that he seriously restricts the nobilities, which seriously pees them off. He's a very stingy king, isn't he? He is a stingy king. That's a good way to put it. Carpenter, very famous historian, says that it was really stupid. And actually all that happened was it made massive tensions amongst the nobility. And then when Henry VIII comes along, who's much more of a people-pleaser king, I think it's fair to say, he just reinstates everyone and just reverses loads of the stuff his dad has done to sort of make people happy. And it makes makes him much more popular. But throughout Henry VII's reign, nobility is reduced by 30%. Henry VII introduces a lot of bonds and sort of rules on his nobility. So for one thing, because so many of them died during all the massive battles that have happened for ages with the Wars of the Roses, you're either left with no son so he lets it all just oh revert back to the king i'll have that um or he claims to be watching over it for very young Mm. lords that have come so now the duke is eight because his dad died in battle or whatever and so he takes control of that he also puts a lot of act of attainder out where you don't have to have a trial you can just go you're treasonous gonna have your lands now please he also creates a lot of recognances which are bonds that with nobility where he's like if you step a toe out of line i get this much money or i get all of your land or things like that so got a few little statistics here of just how much Henry did because this is impressive to me 36 out of 62 noble families are under some form of bond or recognance. Lord Mountjoy is under 23 different recognances. <laughs> um, he also uses the Order of the Garter a lot because this is a very special and official award you can give to someone to make them a part a knight of the Order of the Garter, but they don't get any extra authority or money or anything from it. Is it like a gold star? Yeah, basically. There's also 138 acts of attainder I've got down here. So he just finds all these ways to limit them. I mean, he's not... I read something by one historian that said he's not anti-nobles. He's just very wary of them. Like, he does still create some, like, new positions. He makes his uncle Jasper Tudor the Duke of Bedford, but a lot of the lines he just lets them die out as a way of, like, going, right, there's too many of you, you've got too much power. So he just, like, finds lots of clever ways to reduce their authority so that they don't have king-making ability anymore. I, I can completely understand why he did that. Yeah, I mean, you can definitely see it through the Wars of the Roses and things, but it's interesting that then you get to the Civil War, like we talked about at the beginning, this is all very cyclical, um, that they, I mean, as I say, Henry un- Henry VIII, his son, undoes a lot of those and things like that, but clearly we get to a point where there's centralisation, bureaucratisation, the nobility are having less authority, also arguably the king has less authority as well, and then the civil war, people go, wait a second, we want more authority again. Well, I also think the civil war is a, is a reaction to the divine right of kings. 
Now, as I say, Henry VIII, he does go back on a lot of what his dad does because his dad's been quite harsh. He's seen as kind of like the grumpy old man that like was really scared of everything and produced everything. He didn't spend a lot of money, things like that. Yeah, he's the Tudor I never really liked studying. I actually love studying He's really interesting. I think he was a very clever monarch. He's He's not just, as as I said earlier, he's not a fighty man, so... They don't like him as much. Um, but I Yeah, maybe good. that's why I didn't like him when I was younger. But Henry Economically the, fantastic. Yeah. Henry VIII, not like his father, likes a bit more of a party, doesn't he? Well, to um, be fair, he wasn't raised to be king. No, and he also wasn't raised in Burgundy watching his country fall apart. So he undoes a lot of it, makes a lot of dukedoms, spe- specifically gives his uh, friend Charles Brandon a role. So he recreates a lot of the nobility that have disappeared. We also see a very interesting case study under Henry VIII through his wives, because actually you're always going to see kings and queens fighting with their nobility about who has the ear of the king. But after people start to see a bit of a trend with um, people <laughs> with him it. replacing queens... He gets through women. He does, he does. Um, after that, people start seeing that, they start using it as a method of patronage and getting the ear of the king. So the Boleyns are very much trying to get the ear of the king. Probably why... Anne's older sister, Mary, has an affair with the king before Anne comes along. It's very much the Boleyns using their daughters and the women in their family to try and get the ear of the king. And when Anne point blank refuses to sleep with Henry until she is queen they get a lot of control because obviously she has a lot of authority over Henry at that point. You then also particularly see this with the Howards. Catherine Howard is very young and Henry is not very young at this point. Henry's I believe like he's 40, 40 something. I think he's 46. I think so. Guess. I was going to say 47. So Her uncle, Norfolk? Yeah. I was all introduced to this very much as like, in a very simplified version Norfolk wants the heir of the king, knows that he needs a new queen and goes, well, I've got a niece. I've got a niece. Do you fancy? She's meant to be very pretty and just sort of pushes her under Henry's nose. The Norfolks are much more Catholic. And during that period, we see Henry go a lot more. We're not going to get into the discussion of um, Henry's, religion. Henry's religion because I have a lot of thoughts I, on that. Oh, I think there's a there's a lot we can say about that. I think we should have a whole week on religion and kingship and yeah. like castles and things like that. But so we could talk about Henry's religion for a while. But basically, he does seem to sway left and right on the scale depending on who has his ear and, and the Norfolk who, who his wife is. And the Norfolks have his ear because they get Catherine um, to marry him, and then. That it, during that period they get everything going a lot more Catholic he after saying that Tyndall's book can be published the English version of the Bible which is seen as a very Protestant thing he calls that back under this period so we see a lot of backwards and forwards interestingly that links us into Catholic nobility also a very important point again we don't want to talk about this too much now Religious because episode. but there's a whole side of the debate where historians say that catholicism wouldn't have survived under elizabeth without key nobility they are very conservative because they are clinging to the old religion and they are clinging to the old concept of governance where they have a lot more authority and without those nobles and the money they inject into it um into the mission they would not a lot of historians argue that Catholicism would not have survived. Interesting. I didn't know that. Mm. 
Um, but I think in terms of the people who become powerful as a result of managing to marry their daughters or nieces off to Henry, I think that's a particularly good example of how you can manipulate power. It's a different way of gaining power. Mm. And that's obviously one of the things that put a lot of people's noses out of joint under Edward the Fourth because mm. suddenly the Woodville family came in and married all their daughters off to And that was very out of all place. the nobility. Yeah. To continue with Elizabeth, mm. we also see issues over royal prerogative again, which we've talked a little bit about already, in that she thinks matters of religion, but also matters of succession, very, very much royal prerogative. And she thinks that government, parliament, they have no right to discuss it. And that is her matter, which really creates problems. So Cecil, you've got William and then his son, Robert, Robert. have a lot to do with the succession. They have to sneakily plan the succession because you can't not have a succession plan. But Elizabeth doesn't like to be thought that she can be replaced and she doesn't have any heirs directly so she doesn't want to hear that James of Scotland might be the next king which is what happens, spoiler alert, because she doesn't want anyone to think that she can be replaced now. So Cecil has to do all of this behind her back and actually there's a lot of sneaky letters. As a noble with the power that Elizabeth vests in him has the power to go and do all of these things and there's some stuff to suggest that he actually is very instrumental in bringing down Mary Queen of Scots. Yes, but this is the thing, very much especially under Elizabeth, but obviously all the time, the nobility really having to walk on eggshells and be very careful. There is no going over their mark in Elizabeth's time in particular. She's very hot on it. I mean... Yeah, and you've also, I think we can bring that back around to Dudley as well and just the ability to... the whole succession and how that allows people to display their power in different ways to try and gain favour because they know that that favour is going to be what makes them stronger Mm. and I think that's quite interesting as well So in between Henry VIII and Elizabeth, of course, we had Edward VI, Henry's son. And that also poses a very interesting case study for the power of the nobility because, of course, Edward is underage and so nobility become protectors. We have his uncle, I believe, Seymour, um, originally. And then when he gets the job, um, we then have Northumberland. And of course, this is when... We see an aspect of nobility seeing how much authority they basically get to play king even though they don't have royal blood. But we also see how the nobility can be used to support the throne and carry out the wishes of the throne. And of course, we've talked about these people in previous episodes because they are, it's Northumberland who tries to bring in Lady Jane Grey. Yes. After the death of of Henry of Edward the Sixth and that leads to his job. <laughs> so um, it doesn't does, go well. I don't know why you'd want to be when in that you position. Get, it seems to me when you have so much powers and ability that you get that close to the throne. It is it's like you, you know killed. in Game of Thrones, like in the Game of Thrones you win or you die. Yeah. It really is. If you're if you aim for if you're a high nobility and you aim for the throne, you better make it. But I do think you're right. It's it, there are we we've been talking a lot about the power that the nobility have to check the king or the queen but it's we're not really talking about the fact that most of the time they're just helping the king and the queen and doing their bidding for them because they obviously the areas that they run if it's Warwick Castle Kenilworth Castle all the castles they have 
lands around them, so they muster people for war. They, they have, suppress they suppress rebellions. rebellions. Often it's actually their job to go and suppress. I mean, it goes really badly when you have rebellion under Edward. We have like flaring up of rebellion all over the place during his reign. Well, but... it's because of the religious stuff that's being put out mm. by Seymour, so yeah. the Duke of Somerset and people like that. And so, of course, you see the matter of the Catholic nobility are going to be on the rebellion side, but the Protestant nobility, it's not all one way or the other. The Protestant no. nobility are going to go and help suppress. In terms of Somerset and people like that, they are helping the monarch to also extend their own influence and their own ideas, which is definitely, I think, what the Seymours are doing with the Protestantism. So, yeah, the nobility can absolutely be used to help carry out the needs of the king as well. They're not always on the side of a rebellion. Whilst Somerset, who is a Seymour, whilst he is the protector of Edward, because Edward's too young, Northumberland, who becomes the protector after Somerset, actually has a lot to do with crushing one of the rebellions, Ket's Rebellion, in 1549. So often the nobility are involved in suppressing rebellions as well as rebelling against well, the king. Well, also Catherine Howard's uncle. He's involved in squashing the rebellions up north when it comes to things like the Pilgrimage of Grace. Mm. Charles Brandon also has a lot to do with helping Henry VIII enforce his laws, so they have a lot to do with running the country. So we've shown how sometimes nobles have way too much power and that can cause rebellions. We've shown how they can have a lot of power and that can help support the king. And we've also shown how kings and queens have tried to restrict their nobles over time. Obviously, we can't talk about everything, but we've given some examples. It's a spectrum, really. It goes all the way from completely supporting the king and just getting on with your role to having the ear of the king and sort of influencing policy and things all the way up to um, rebelling against the king and then for the, for those same replacing yeah. the king. For those same advisors for the bad counsel that they're getting from the people who are getting the ear of the king. Yeah. So, yeah. If there's anything major we've missed out, let us know. You can get in touch with us. Obviously, we're still working out how we're going to structure these episodes in particular, these theme episodes. You can go to podcastlespodcast at gmail.com for our email. Or you can go to our website, which will have all of our show notes as well and our little blog so that's podcastles.co.uk you can also just search us on social media podcastles yep that is the end of Warwickshire we've got through yeah. our first county how do you feel about it good I love Warwickshire I'm sad to move on but I know you're very excited I for am. the next county I am pretty excited we're going to do Oxfordshire next we are indeed starting with Oxford Castle of next course. week of course and we will see you for that we are looking forward to seeing you again soon bye bye bye